It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 263 for October 9th, 2011. Recorded October 7th. Well, it looks like fraudsters have a new trick, or at least a new twist on an old trick. Weekend mornings are times for tinkering, and on the 1st of October, I found a good candidate for tinkering in my email box. It was a message from Barrister Mon Ghazali bin Mode, Esquire. Except for one thing, it was typical and unremarkable. He wanted to share $9.7 million with me. Fairly run-of-the-mill kind of thing. The differentiating factor wasn't the address the message came from. I'm sure that most barristers in Malaysia do use MSN accounts. It wasn't the salutation, either. Hello, dear. It wasn't the random capitalization or the poor English. It was the presence of a website address. I read the message, and you can too. There's a copy of it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just click the image that you'll see in the day's program to make it larger. The main thrust was that a business magnet, and this surprised me, the fraudster actually spelled magnet right. A business magnet who lived in Malaysia for 13 years died in a 2004 tsunami and naturally left no heirs. Barrister Mon Ghazali bin Maud had searched for an heir, but oh, couldn't find one. But then he found my name, which was mentioned nowhere in the message, and suggested that I stand in as the next of kin. He would keep 60% of the money. I would get 40%. Should I contact him by email? No. Phone? Uh-uh. He invited me to visit his web page. It was obvious immediately that the message was fraudulent, but it was a Saturday morning, and I wanted to peek under the shroud. So here's what I found. It's both dangerous and foolish to just follow an unknown link, particularly when the stench of fraud is already so strong. So I started with Google. The response from Google suggested that the firm had been established in 1988. But a quick check of domain registrations indicates the name was registered just last year. Okay, so we already have strike one, an MSN email address. And we have strike two, barristers don't perform mundane operations such as seeking the next of kin. They don't do that any more than Supreme Court justices defend drunk drivers in municipal court. And we have strike three, the random capitalization, funny punctuation, and grammar errors that most fifth graders wouldn't make. So I guess this lie about the date would be strike four? The Who Is search also gave me an IP address, so I thought it'd be good to see where the site is hosted. And the answer is Walnut, California. I have written to the hosting company to suggest that they may want to decommission this site under their standard terms of service. For good measure, I ran the domain name through Central Ops and learned nothing new of interest. So now it was time to take a look at the site, but by a roundabout way. As I mentioned, it's dangerous to just go there. My assumption was that it's just a run-of-the-mill fraudster, but there's no guarantee that somebody who wants to obtain your money through trickery might not also want to plant some malware on your computer. The problem with visiting a website, even if you think all of your computer's protective mechanisms are strong and up-to-date, 
is that the site may have some new trick for planting malware. Somebody has to get it first. I prefer to examine the code without opening the page in a browser. So I started with Windows PowerShell. It's on your computer if you have a system that runs Vista or a later operating system, and you may have it if your computer runs XP. Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you'll see how to use Windows PowerShell to do this. Essentially, I downloaded the code and saved it to a file. Once I had the code, I could examine it line by line, copy and paste it into Dreamweaver. References to the graphics were relative to the document, so they didn't work from my location, but they did show up when I globally replaced relative references with fully qualified references. That still didn't tell me very much, though, because most of the site is Flash-based. To see that, I'd have to load the site in the browser. But not on my primary computer. I have the latest version of Flash, so it should be reasonably safe. Still, I wouldn't try this on a computer where it would be inconvenient to have to reinstall the operating system. I loaded the page with Firefox on a Windows 8 notebook. I figured if anything went wrong, I would lose the Windows 8 partition. And that's all. No big deal. Because I have scripting turned off by default, not much of the page appeared. When I turned scripting on, the page appeared, and with it many more strikes. Perhaps the ugliest and most misaligned logo I've ever seen in the past year or so graced the top left corner. And the page told me that this prestigious law firm also considered notary public service to be important. Well, it is an important service, but hardly for a prestigious law firm. That makes about as much sense as equating Nordstrom and Walmart. Or maybe it makes as much sense as Nordstrom telling me that they have janitors come in and clean the place once in a while. The website continued the email's practice of randomly capitalizing some words for no apparent reason. The text included a line break where none should have been, and on and on. Overall, there really wasn't very much to learn here. But it was an amusing way to spend a Saturday morning. Not all news is surprising, and certainly this isn't. Steve Jobs died Wednesday at the age of 56. Apple's website said the company has lost a visionary and creative genius. In the early 1990s, many technology reporters, including me, felt that Apple was destined for the dustbin. Apple had been so badly mismanaged that it had just 5% of the computer market. Then, Jobs returned to Apple. National Public Radio's Laura Seidel created a brief retrospective that ran on Thursday morning. I think it was a good one. If you missed it, you can listen to it. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Jobs was reportedly hard to work for. I probably wouldn't have enjoyed working for Apple, and I'm not sure I would have liked Jobs as a person. But as a futurist, a technologist, and a marketer, he had no equal. He's been compared to Edison, to Ford, even to Da Vinci. He probably should also be compared to P.T. Barnum. Regardless of your opinion of Steve Jobs, he was clearly a visionary, clearly someone who could imagine products that we would buy and enjoy if only they existed, and he made them exist. Jobs made Apple the largest retailer of music in the United States. He financed Pixar Animation Studios and later sold the company to the Walt Disney Company. He said, we are here to put a dent in the universe. Otherwise, why else even be here? And that defines his life. 
You know the story. Jobs was ousted from Apple in a boardroom coup by John Scully in 1985, created the ill-fated Next computer, returned to Apple in 1996 when Apple bought Next, and became the interim CEO in 1997. In 2004, Jobs was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, usually a death sentence. After two medical leaves of absence, he resigned as CEO in August of this year. And remember that 1984 Apple commercial, the one that ran only once in the Super Bowl, but even today everyone still remembers? There's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. When Adobe released Lightroom 3, it was a revolutionary improvement for an application that is equally useful to both amateurs and professionals. For professionals, it's a great workflow organizer. For amateurs, it may be all you need. Now the 3.5 upgrade adds support for more cameras and adds some lens profiles. It also speeds the system even more. Maybe you're wondering what a lens profile is. Now, it's not what happens when you pick up the camera and hold it sideways and look at the side of the lens. That would be a lens profile, I suppose, but not a lens profile. Every lens has certain unique characteristics, and not all of those characteristics are good. A zoom lens may exhibit pincushion distortion at one end of its range and barrel distortion at the other, for example. Adobe and users of its various products have created profiles that programs such as Lightroom can use. When you tell Lightroom which lens you use, or allow the camera's EXIF data to tell Lightroom for you, the program can apply corrections for you based on that specific lens. You don't have to accept the corrections. If you disagree with what you're seeing on screen, you can tweak or even eliminate the modification. And if you're willing to spend a little time yourself, you can create a profile that fits your exact lens. Lightroom 3.5 and Camera Raw 6.5 add support for more than 20 lenses from Canon, Hasselblad, Nikon, Pentax, Sigma, and Sony. And raw format support is included for a dozen or so new cameras from Fuji, Hasselblad, Olympus, Panasonic, Phase 1, and Sony. The update also fixes some bugs that were introduced between versions 3.0 and 3.4. If you're interested in a full list of supported lenses and cameras, as well as the entire list of bugs that have been squished, you'll find them on the Adobe website, and there's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Lightroom 3 was already considerably faster than Lightroom 2, but the 3.5 update makes the new version even faster. When it comes to software, faster is always better, because nobody likes to wait on a computer. If you already own Lightroom 3, the upgrade comes without charge. Those who own Lightroom 1 or 2 will pay a $100 upgrade fee. All right, so Adobe says it's $99. Just figure it's 100 Some of the big computer manufacturers, HP, Toshiba, Lenovo, Dell, Sony, those guys, usually ship computers that contain a lot of what's called crapware, applications the buyer doesn't really want, or need. Even worse, the computers usually come with what's called a recovery partition on the hard drive. That's provided instead of a CD or DVD that the buyer could use to create a clean installation of the operating system. To say I deplore this practice would be an understatement. This kind of nonsense creates confusion. Here's a message from Keith, a Dayton listener. My son's newer i7 HP desktop is Windows 7. The fragment shows three drives, the operating system, drive C, HP recovery, drive D, and system. System doesn't seem to want to defragment. It stays at 14% or 13%. How do I get the system to defragment, or is this just a moot point? 
Here's my reply. I haven't been able to track down anything regarding system, and without a drive letter, it's really not a Windows drive. I asked if there was a chance that Linux or some other operating system had also been installed. I asked if the disk manager showed that partition, and ended with, well, it's probably okay to leave it alone, because it appears not to be a normal Windows drive. Keith then sent a screenshot of the disk manager showing a partition called system, and without a letter. So apparently system is a partition put on HP computers. It's 100 megabytes, not a lot of space, just used to confirm that a version of Windows on the computer is genuine. Why HP needs 100 megabytes to do this is a mystery, and that's in addition to the 11 gigabytes of space that HP takes for the HP recovery partition. Maybe the system directory contains some recovery tools that are used in conjunction with the recovery partition. Who knows? And that's the problem. I presume that the computer didn't come with a Windows DVD, and that's one of the reasons I will not buy a computer from HP or most of the other big vendors. The system recovery depends on the health of the system's hard drive. That said, I don't have any idea what HP puts in that partition or why the defragmenter can't do much with it. It would seem that anything in there should be static and, once written, would never be changed. Hence, the fragmentation would reasonably be expected to be zero. There's probably no point in trying to defragment that partition, or actually to do anything else with it. This is the kind of lunacy that's one of the reasons I deal with a local assembler of computers, TCR in Pickerington and Lancaster. Buy a computer from a local assembler, and you'll also receive local support for your computer, and a genuine Microsoft installation CD or DVD, without all the crapware. In short circuits, last week I mentioned I had downloaded a library book from Digital Downloads, a project that includes more than a dozen libraries in central Ohio and elsewhere in the state. This week I understood how Amazon plans to monetize that capability. On Thursday, I received an email message from Amazon. The book I had downloaded in Kindle format will expire in three days, the message said. Oh, read faster, read faster. But... I could purchase the ebook version with a single click, and if I did that, or if I borrow it again from the library, any notes or highlights that I created will be preserved. What I've been reading is The War That Came Early. It's an alternative history work of fiction. Amazon describes the second book in the series, The Big Switch, this way. In this extraordinary World War II alternate history, master storyteller Harry Turtledove begins with a big switch. What if Neville Chamberlain, instead of appeasing Hitler, had stood up to him in 1938. Enraged, Hitler reacts by lashing out at the West, promising his soldiers that they will reach Paris by the new year. They don't. Three years later, his genocidal apparatus not yet fully in place. Hitler has barely survived a coup while Jews cling to survival. But England and France wonder whether the war is still worthwhile. Alternative histories require that we suspend disbelief with a little more gusto than is usual for most fiction, and it means that the basic historical details need to be more accurate. Of certain things that happen in real life would never be accepted in a work of fiction, so it's a bit disturbing to have a low-flying Russian bomber pilot wearing an oxygen mask, and German tank operators making puns that work only in English. Even so, The War That Came Early series is a strangely compelling group of books, even if it's not one that I'd be likely to buy. But now I understand how Amazon plans to get some money out of library books. 
New Hewlett-Packard CEO Meg Whitman says she'll decide what to do with HP's personal computer division by the end of the month. The former eBay CEO and former candidate for governor of California became head of HP when the former CEO Leo Apothker was fired. The company's stock has been in freefall, and one might presume that Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard are spinning at about 78 RPM in their graves. HP previously announced that a decision might not be made until the end of the year, but Whitman says the delay is discouraging to both employees and customers. According to the San Jose Mercury News, Whitman has painted a dire portrait of California's recurring budget deficits, rising public debt, and lagging spending on education. Whitman also called for reforming the state's tax rules and lowering the tax burden on business, but she acknowledged that such changes face steep political obstacles. This account from the San Jose Mercury News describes well the stage on which HP must decide whether to continue its PC division and, if it continues that division, whether to keep it in California. For more than a year, HP has been the graveyard of CEOs. In August of last year, Mark Hurd resigned and Kathy Lesjack took over as interim CEO. In September, Leo Apotheker became HP's new permanent CEO, But in September of this year, Apotheker was fired and Whitman became the new permanent CEO. Stay tuned for As the HP Turns. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.